Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how you tuned there it's David I don't know about you but I'm kind of sick of Americans at this stage I must admit I have never in all my life stayed up watched polls, listened to American commentary, never really, American elections came and went, yeah, I was interested, it was never a big deal. But this time, I was that person who was flicking around American TV channels to see what was the latest. What about you, Ed? Well, I do that all the time. Anyway. <laughs> I love it. Last week was fantastic for me. Like it <laughs> this, was just, is, this is John's <laughs> idea of heaven. I got very little sleep and I had loads of work to do as well. But I loved it. And I spent a lot of time work looking at Fox News. Now, that is an eye-opener. I don't know, did you get to see any of it? No, because I don't have it. Right, yeah. I was looking at it online. But it was it's an eye-opener into the American psyche. It really is. Let me tell you a couple of things about Fox. Because first of all, they're new. They're all perfectly turned out. All and these quaffed. Fun, yeah, yeah they, they, it's beautiful. like... Botox and big hair. But they kick off the programme with this big gladiatorial music. Like, real, we're going to war type of stuff. But isn't that its whole whole thing is we are at war, isn't it? And we are on one side and you guys on the other. Yeah, absolutely. And they wheeled on all their their Republican guys and they're, you know, really pushing. So what about the fraud and what about the the irregularities and... Hunter Biden! Hunter Biden! Where's Hunter? (laughs) (laughs) But amazingly, all of their guests... We're saying, yeah, well, it's a, it is a concern, and it's this, and it's that, and that. But not one of them used the fraud word. Not one of them, which I thought was amazing. So the presenter, I thought they would be all using the fraud word. So did I. But they're all leaving the sinking ship, and they are really, they are like rats leaving that ship, aren't they? Absolutely. But then the Fox presenter says, I can't remember which one he was. He says, yeah, well, that, that's right. There might not be any evidence now, but if there is, we're going after it. And then they wheel in the next slot, ask the same questions. So it's just like, stoking the whole base up all the time. poking the you bear. Know what's funny is I haven't seen Fox News, but I've been oh, on. Man, it's great. I've been on great. Fox News. Have you? I was actually on Patrick's Day of right. 2007, right? right. I was yeah. on the Pope's Children, 2008 actually. Pope's Children was published in the States and I was on a book tour, right? And yeah. it happened to coincide with Patrick's Day. And but this is long after... 
The it Irish a, edition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what happens is usually a book is right, published right. and then an American publisher picks up on it and, and whatever. And they finally finish it and go, Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that's fair it. enough. Yeah, Jason, it took me two years to read that. <laughs> anyway, uh so I, I turn turn up. So you're on the circuit, so you're doing CNN, you're doing NBC, you know, it's it's, a, it's a whole thing, but Fox is really quite different. So you're in New yeah. York and it's uh, do you know the Radio City building in New York? Yeah, right I, the, I, I know it, yeah. Beside the Rockefeller Center, where yeah. basically all major news organizations have an office mm. and have a have a studio and fox is completely different in the sense that you go in if you go to like nbc or even rt or any of those those sort of things it's a very it's quite a chilled sort of relaxed idea fox you're kind of hyped up before you go in right, right. and all you see is these stuff shirt republican guys right with big heads yeah heads yeah. like televisions that's what gleaming white teeth yeah, massively white teeth yeah. you know and these extraordinarily beautiful women, right? Yeah. But they're all full-on mental Republicans, right? So I get on, and of course, it's Patrick's Day, and I'm there talking about it. And of course, they want to talk about Patrick's Day, but of course, what happened was Bear Stearns collapsed on Patrick's Day 2008. Oh, okay, right. So suddenly, I end up talking about banks and the whole thing about banking yeah. system, whatever. But what was amazing is that even though you're slightly on edge, or maybe because you're slightly on edge, you perform better on Fox. Right. It can be quite lethargic in other TV stations, yeah. kind of like going through the motions. Whereas in Fox, you're kind of aware that they don't care. You've got a pitch to them. You know, right. it's, it's yeah, a yeah, sales yeah, yeah. pitch. But it's, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, the reason I didn't watch Fox was number one, is I find it very hard to find the live thing on the Twitter. When I right. go on Fox Twitter, I can't find the live thing. So I just right. see things, right? So they get cross. <laughs> and the second thing is, I was I was rooting obviously like you were for Biden, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to see the other side. Oh yeah, no. See, I'm a firm believer in that. You always got to know your enemy. Exactly. <laughs> but let me tell you, just very quickly, the other really interesting part of watching Fox was watching their ads, of which they have ad breaks every two minutes. Yeah, it, and it, ads it, tell it, you a hell of a lot about who's oh watching. My God, yeah, like last night is a good example. At least half or more than half of the ads on Fox were medical ads. Like, and not just, you know, get your Neurofen type of stuff. These are like for heavy duty. So for instance... Which you need most mornings. Indeed. <laughs> exactly. But for instance, one of them was for a chemotherapy, a home chemotherapy that drug. That sounds kind of crazy. Absolutely. The ad was about two or three minutes long, literally, uh, going through all the benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last, I'd say, minute of the ad was a list of side effects, like memory loss, diarrhea, loss of appetite, tingling in the fingers. It just went on. <laughs> All the things you don't want to happen. But you know what that's interesting, John? It shows you, number one, who's watching. Yeah. But number two, it reveals something much more interesting from an economic side as well, or maybe as interesting, which is how medicine is consumed in the United States. The United States Big spends 15% of GDP on health, and yet it has the most significant proportion of its population without healthcare. So yeah. think about this, right? So it spends a fortune on medicine, a fortune. Yeah. And what you have is crazily privatized medicine so that if you're old and you're watching Fox and you're reasonably well off, or maybe you're middle class, a huge proportion of your income is going on medicine yeah. all the time. And it's also interesting that that correlates with the opioid crisis in America, which is bigger than anywhere else. I love your tangents. <laughs> 
I love your tantrums. I'm going for my, I'm going for my, you know, did you know GDP and la la la. And you're like, you're like, you're down and dirty the opioid crisis. But that is the reason. Louis Theroux is in the room. He's coming in. But it it actually means that over half of Fox's audience are sick. And old. And old, yeah. And grumpy and angry. Yeah. So let's talk about angry America because what has been the real takeaway from this election, John, is nobody won. Yeah, Biden won by a whisker, but you know, the Democrats were hoping this was going to be a plebiscite on Donald Trump and he was going to lose. And then maybe you say, okay, that's over. Mm. Trumpism ain't over at all. No. He's going to reincarnate and he's going to change the American political landscape. Number two is Biden now has got to deal with a Senate which could be Republican dominated. So he's got one hand tied behind his back. So all the things that Biden and the Democrats promised during their their own internal party discussions are now not so much on ice, but now he's going to have to deal with Mitch McConnell. He's going to have to do what Obama did and what Clinton did, which is make compromises all the time. Yeah. So the sort of the AOC Bernie side that wanted the huge Green New Deal and wanted the, the idea that we'd have helicopter money, the idea that we'd have MMT and all that stuff with Stephanie Kelly. Yeah, yeah. That's all parked because he's going to have to go right down the centre. But the one thing is, before the election, John, the big criticism of Biden was that he wasn't charismatic, he wasn't a leader, he was a backroom guy who made deals, who walked across the floor, who was this guy who believed in the bipartisanship. You know this thing in America? Yeah. That you have to vote. And everyone said, that's awful because you want a leader. Now, in actual fact, Biden has the qualities that could be absolutely necessary yeah. to actually do the deals in the, in the way that maybe other leaders of the Democrats don't have because yeah. he's, he has to do a deal with McConnell. And what you might find, remember we talked last week about triangulation. Remember Clinton? This idea is, how did Clinton get things done when he was dealing with Newt Gingrich? Yes, right? yeah, yeah. He had to give a little bit... He had to give sops to the Republicans to get his own stuff through. So I think we're going to look at real dirty politics for the next four years of horse trading, yeah. you know, this idea of behind the closed doors, the smoke-filled rooms, yeah. and politics as we used to know it. And that's what Biden's good at. So I think, John, with, with that in mind, that it's going to be trading, negotiating, because like we can do the Trump stuff, okay? But mm. the more interesting stuff is what does American politics look like for the next four years. Yeah. And why don't we go and talk to somebody who was actually in Clinton's cabinet during those four years? This is the woman who ran economic policy for Clinton. When Clinton was dealing with Newt Gingrich, dealing with all those sort of things, you know, the idea is how do you run a country when you have one hand tied behind your back yeah. and you have your opponent, someone like Trump or Gingrich, who is prepared to do anything to block your passage. So the great thing is we have a mate of mine, Laura Tyson, who was the chairwoman of Clinton's economic advisors. She is professor at Berkeley. She has done everything you can possibly imagine doing in economics. She's in California. It's early morning there. Let's go over to her. Laura, it's gorgeous to have you on the podcast. How, How are things? You must be feeling pretty okay now about America. Well, you know, uh, I've always described myself in economics and life as cautiously optimistic. So let me say, rather than elated, jubilant, jumping up and down, all of that, I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) 
But I mean, given what could have happened, you know, that you can drop the caution for a while. I mean, Laura, let's let's get into this. You know, I mean, Irish people, as you know, I mean, you're from an Italian background. You you knew Irish mm-hmm. people when you were growing up. We have a long, long connection with the United States, like the Italian community. Yes. The United States that's presenting itself to us now is is a weird creature. It's not something we really get a handle on. What does the last week say about the USA? I want to say that it's weird for an American like myself as well. The level of divisiveness, which we began to see in 2016, which President uh, Trump has absolutely played upon. It's absolutely played upon. He's not a president of the country. He's the president of his team, only his team. And that has taken what was already growing divisiveness in the United States and set it, it made it more rigid. So I'm surprised as well. You know, one of the people who's written a lot on this is Ezra Klein. And Ezra wrote a very good book about why we're divided before this election. Uh, And, you know, what you see is people have their religious affiliation and their party affiliation and their class affiliation and their social affiliation all come together in a sense of identity. Uh, And then you also have in that divisiveness, you then have, I think, a very important, unique element, uh, which Europe understands, and the U.S., I think, has understood in its history before, but not recently, and that is the cult of a person. So there is a cult around Donald Trump, but uh, that cult is very strong, and it's not going to go away. So essentially, the next four years under a Biden presidency is going to have to try to heal some of that division. It's going to have to try to, and and I think the Biden team knows that. And it's very, and I think you hear Biden all the time talking about he will be a president, not just of the people who elect him, but the people who voted against him. I think he's going to try very, very hard to do that and to do some healing, which is essential as we move out of this divisiveness, very painful, bitter, angry divisiveness into more a greater sense of unity. That's going to be a real challenge for uh, the new president, President Biden. So if we go back 25 years, you are the chair of Clinton's economics advisors. America is is the wealthiest country in the world. It's the most technologically savvy country in the world. It has the biggest military. At that stage, it was the only superpower. The Soviet Union had collapsed. It was gone. It was under Yeltsin. China was emerging, but it's not really threatening everything. America has all the aces. It has all the cards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure when you were at Washington, you were aware that we're in a unique position. When Mm -hmm. you look Mm -hmm. at that that 20-odd year period, what happened to create the environment where a demagogue could come through Mm -hmm. and emerge Mm -hmm. with like 49% of the vote? This is not an overwhelming, resounding statement. So I, I think we have to read the election outcome carefully. What, it, what is it saying? What is the message? So in terms of division, if I go back to the mid-1990s and think about what happened, first of all, we had had since about 1980 significant increases in inequality and income and wealth, and they have continued. And so they've driven into the electorate, much more class issues, much more kind of economic struggle issue, much more for some of the electorate, 
we want you, the president, we want you, the administration, to help us. But then you have others who actually, and this was an important theme in this campaign, others who say, watch out, the progressive Democrats want socialism. They want to take away from the people who have made it their, their income, their rights, their responsibilities. So we have this income inequality issue that is very, very important in terms of what's happened to divisiveness. Along with that, this is probably true in throughout uh, Europe. My understanding is from working with McKinsey, it's true. Growing differences among regions. So instead of having during the post-war period up to about, let's say the mid 1990s, regional differences, economic differences were declining. There was more of a convergence in, say, things of per capita income, education levels, ability to invest in entrepreneurial activities. There was a convergence. That started to change. That started to change sometime in the 2000s. It was really exacerbated by the Great Recession, which I think we also need to talk about here, because that was a major force that drove this tendency toward division greater. So And then, just let me say that there is a lot of concern in the United States. It existed back in 1990s. I remember dealing with it, that the loss of good jobs, and those are manufacturing jobs. Those are jobs that don't require a college education. Those jobs, those good jobs not requiring a college education have been declining. People blame that on the government. They blame it on trade. They blame it on trade. And they feel like their positions have not been protected uh, and they're not represented. So there's a lot of underlying longer-term structural forces at play here that the erosion of the middle wage jobs with high school education is a long-term trend. The growing income and wealth inequality, a long-term trend. The regional divergence of economic prospects has become a longer-term trend. We, we have to try to reverse all of these things. Imagine you were now sitting with, in the same way as you were sitting with Clinton, imagine you were sitting with Joe Biden now, and you said, okay, President, here are the issues. We've just laid them out here. We still have enormous capability in this country, right? This is not yeah, a country. Right. This is not a country going bust. This is not a Brazil and Argentina. No. This is the United States. No. So we we've got all the stuff. We've, we've, we have we can fix this, right? And mm-hmm. you, I, I saw something you wrote recently about small businesses and entrepreneurship mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, startup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you were to say to, to Joe Biden, here's a few things we should do on the economic front or the macro. What to do? What to do? Yeah, what to do? So. Let's lay out the agenda, assuming he would have the ability to do this, because I think that that is, I need to underscore the divided government nature of the U.S., okay? We have a Supreme Court now, which is in the hands of of an agenda that is not the agenda that I would want to put forward, okay? We have, and it's very unlikely, even though we might Get it's possible there are so many there are three races now in the Senate that are such that there might be runoffs and it, we might find ourselves in January with a 50-50 Senate. We we could possibly find ourselves not a flipped one but a 50-50 one, which is amazing. And then of course the vice president has the last vote, so it would be so Democratic be, okay. majority, right? But I I just want to start that because. When one gives the president advice, he knows very well, because he spent all those years in the Senate, what he can possibly try to do by executive order 
and what he's going to have to try to figure out a way to negotiate with the uh, Republican majority or with the 50-50 uh, Senate. Um, that being said, uh, he has identified actually clearly in his uh, economic uh, policy proposals. And by the way, an amazing thing about this, Trump has had none. Trump has had none. There was no Republican Party platform. We do not know what his economic agenda is. He's never said his economic agenda. Biden has laid it out. Okay. So very important to President Biden. And I think maybe because of the dynamics, we'll get this. The Great Recession. It took the U.S. a long time, it took Europe a longer time to get out of the Great Recession. There was a lot of pain imposed on the very people who feel they were disenfranchised, not represented, the system was rigged against them, all of those, okay, because we didn't do enough to address the problem of the Great Recession. Uh, it meant very, very slow recoveries. It meant that a lot of the pain lasted for a long period of time in the low-wage sector. Most of the jobs created, for example, in California, after the coming out of this very long Great Recession, you know, it hits in 2008, 2009, the recovery is almost literally takes up to the brink, <laughs> up to the brink of the yeah. coronavirus pandemic. Okay, we just got back. We just got back. And in that process, a lot of those jobs were low-wage jobs, and many small business jobs. Small business jobs, I think, are very important. So what does that tell me about the president? Number one, he will, I think, argue, uh, and it may happen. It may happen now because of the dynamics of the Senate. We do need another round of economic stimulus. We, we need that. We, we absolutely need that. We need that for the small business community. We need that for the state and local governments. You know, even in Republican cities and Republican states, those governors and mayors are trying to do things for the small business community, just as an example, uh, or for their community college system, just as an example. But they are largely, particularly the, the cities, but many states, they have a tremendous budget shortfall now. So they're going to have to start laying off people and cutting back these services. So first is economic stimulus, and the stimulus has to go essentially to help the unemployed, who remain unemployed, help uh, state and local governments. That's what I would put. If we're going to have a business loan program, something like the uh, what's called the PPP, the Payroll Protection Program, that was very, very poorly targeted. It did not, in general, go to the smallest, hardest hits business in the hardest hit sectors. We could do better. We should do better. So that's stimulus. Going forward, um, Biden's long-run policies, he has a lot of emphasis, which I think is absolutely correct on infrastructure and tie that to climate change. This is a way to employ a lot of people. <laughs> and this to is the kind of Green in, New Deal idea. This, Yeah, to, yeah but the, yes, that's right. The Green New Deal idea, that the more extreme versions of it had guaranteed jobs and guaranteed incomes. It, it can't, it won't be that. It can't be that. But it can be a significant amount of funding for infrastructure and for green technological development and for green educational programs and for uh, any, any policies that promote the use of alternative energy. Okay, so I, I think that's a, I would say that's a really important area. Another important area that I would say, and this is much harder, I think, well, I won't say much harder, I don't know the politics, would be 
healthcare and just care in general, because uh, we are we're headed to a court case outcome in the Supreme Court sometime in the summer of 2021 that I think will basically eviscerate the Affordable Care Act. So all wow. of a sudden we will be without that. We will be without it because we know that the, we know that the latest, most recently appointed judge has already come out against the ACA. Okay, because no, it's, it's, it's again something that Europeans find really hard to get our heads, heads around. The other thing we find hard there to get our heads around is when I look at those Trump rallies, right, and the people in the pickup trucks and, and all those guys, mm-hmm. right, and I listen to them, and it's very clear to me that they are the losers in the new world, mm-hmm. okay? Those are the people who've fallen behind. And that's when Joe Biden says, look, we're going to have to represent everything. How do, how do you get to a situation where the losers support policies like low taxes for the very wealthy that reinforce the winners and reinforce their loserdom? And yet they celebrate these policies. <laughs> well, I want to start by saying, again, this is a little bit of the understanding the, the system in the United States. The overwhelming majority of the population, that's like 65 to 75%, support health care. They support Obamacare. They're not opposed to it, okay? Uh, they supported uh, the use of face masks in the pand- pandemic. They, they support it. They support, for example, something that is very threatened now, the right, uh, and obviously an issue, it has been an issue in Ireland, the right to abortion. The majority of Americans absolutely support the right to f- choose for women. That's it. But we, the, way, the way our system works, there can be, there are vocal minorities, which in certain places, certain regions, certain states, they're, they're enough, really, as a percentage of the state to carry uh, the state in the election, uh, the senatorial races in the election, and to organize all of these protests and big rallies. Guns is another one. I mean, guns, most Americans, the majority of Americans, would like to have much stricter review before someone can buy a gun, much stricter registration, much stricter control of heavy-duty weaponry, which is not what you need for hunting. But then there are the gun control enthusiasts, and again, small minorities in some, some small minorities overall in the country, but very powerful as a voice, uh, particularly in states, because you got to look at the electoral map and the senatorial map, and then you can see how that happens. Well, I mean, it is an interesting thing, because sometimes, you know, we kind of go along uh, Laura thinking, oh, well, the majority rules in most cases. But in actual fact, what you see is small, heavily organized vocal minorities mm-hmm. actually rule because the vast majority of us kind of shrug our shoulders and say, ah, yeah, whatever. And right. these guys... Or, or, to- yeah. I, I think it's also the case that it's, it's not helpful in the U.S. given the senatorial representation. So basically you have, think about it, you have a state like California, two senators, you have a state like South Dakota, almost no one can find it. Right, on that. The, the, it's not even as big in population as Los Angeles. It's not even close to the population of Los Angeles, but it's got two senatorial votes and it's got electoral votes in the presidential uh, races. So uh, that's where you can have essentially, I would say over the last four years under President Trump, we have had minority rule. What the Senate and the president want in terms of all of those issues I just talked about uh, were what the president and the Senate wanted something different 
than what the majority of Americans want. So we are we have a system which does allow for the capture of the system by minority rule. And, and that has been part of what we've been living through, part of what we've been living through. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask you finally, before we go, Trumpism, yeah. it doesn't go away. It's still there. Is there, is yes, there a mini okay. Trump cleverer, smarter? I mean, it's hard not to be clever and smarter. <laughs> Trump coming along that will take up this mantle because what it strikes me is that the, the US is at this this real tipping point. It's like a, it feels like an FDR type tipping point or 1950s, maybe, you know, JFK, like that, that the United States is in this massive culture war and it's not going away. And economics mm-hmm. might soothe some of the hurt on both sides and either sides. But this idea of you're with us, you're against us, this is my tribe, this is your tribe. Yeah. Are, are you worried that a, a clever Trump will emerge? So there's no evidence right now. This has been such a, Trumpism has also been a cult of personality and the Republican leadership around the country has essentially connected to that rather than develop an alternative voice. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, yesterday the president used the White House podium to make unsubstantiated allegations against the election system and to call for a stopping the vote and to call for a movement to the Supreme Court. These are all violations of, serious violations of American norms of government and divided power and all the rest. They are pure Trump. So far, only a limited number of Republicans have said anything about this, okay? They just have not come out and said, no, this, we, we, we're for Trumpism. We're for the kind of government that we, the Senate, have been working with you, or we, the Republican governors, have been working with you. We're for that, but we're not for you because you are basically misstating, misusing, personalizing the institutions of government in an unethical and violative way, an illegal, an illegal way. But what, what you see is so far, there isn't, no one is rising to sort of take this as, okay, you, you are not doing the right thing. You need to go, but we need to continue with your agenda. There's no voice so far that has come forth. So I can't see that right now, but I can see the policy agenda associated with Trump continuing where you don't have the ability to use the Senate to sort of change that agenda. So will we be able to, someone talked the other day about how they had read Secretary Pompeo's speech from a a year ago, basically talking about the environmental risk to national security coming through the melting of the Arctic, the Arctic. Never mention climate change once. Cannot, cannot, you cannot actually mention climate change in the current version of Trumpism, okay? You cannot believe in climate change. Maybe, maybe we actually see some Republicans, I know that there's a bipartisan group in the Senate thinking about uh, just exploring uh, a carbon tax. So while I don't see an individual leader coming up to replace Trump right now in Trumpism, I do see the possibility that certain key elements of Trumpism, sort of anti-climate change agenda. There seems to be some Republican leadership around the country and even in the Senate to do something. So let's say Trumpism 
uh, we take it apart piece by piece. <laughs> we take it apart piece by piece. A la, a la, right? carte, a la carte Trumpism. A, a la carte Trumpism. And of course, that's also about setting the moral tone and moral character of the nation. And I think that is going to be over. I think that is going to be over. That that may be the most powerful thing that happened. What what the president can stand for and continue to say, I am the president of all of us. That's very important. For the rest of the world, it's very important. It's very important because you have more stability in the intelligence services, in the Justice Department, in the national security arena, which... I would say it's not Trumpism. That it's basically you're now instead of having Trump making foreign policy sort of from the, his, uh, you know, from his Twitter account, you have people who are thinking hard about should we have a really good deal between the U.S. and Europe. I think that's going to be uh, an agenda for the Biden administration. How can we repair economic, trade, finance, you name it, relations with Europe? We we need to do that. How can we improve? How can we take away the hostility and confrontation of U.S. relations with China. They're going to be complicated. There's always going to be competition. But to go to up to sort of the kind of confrontation and conflict that Trump has either threatened or done, I think those things all get uh, adjusted. So uh, elements of Trumpism that are really associated with Trump himself and his personality and his own agenda I think those elements are going to to change, and particularly in foreign policy, where the president, a president, has a lot of executive authority and independent authority. I think you can look to major changes. Uh, apparently, a lot of Americans who might you thought might have voted for Trump, let's take the Hispanic community, where a surprising uh, minority of the Hispanic community, but a minority but larger than expected, voted for Trump. What, what, what's going on here? It, it turns out that around the country, there was a concern that about socialism, about communism, about the, 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 the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was willing to use the term socialist. They, they, they really should not because people don't know the history of socialism and it, it connotes a very, very bad thing in the United States. Okay. We, we spent our entire post-war period fighting against communism and socialism. So that issue of trying to work with people to understand that there can be a role for public policy, say in the healthcare system, which is not socialist. We have got to, we now I'm talking about the Democrats have got to be clear that our commitment is to a private market-driven system. I would use market-driven. And uh, we're not socialists. We are capitalists in the sense that we believe in property and we believe in property rights. But we also believe in an important role for the public sector, where the private sector, even with profit motivation, is not, it's not their job. It's actually not their job to do this. So I, I feel that if we're talking about lessons from Europe, it's really more lessons about the role of public policy that is not, that's not socialism. I mean, we've got to get in the U.S. We've got to work, we the Democrats, very, very hard to get rid of that characterization. We've got to, right. And Germany's Germany's good. It's a market social. It's a social market system. They don't use the term 
socialism. They use market. It's right there in their, in the definition, their self-definition. We are a market system. So uh, yeah, we, I think we can learn from Germany. Laura, listen, <laughs> it was lovely to talk to you. Really lovely to talk to you. We, we will have you back in Kilconomics. It'll be great. Okay. It was a lot of fun too, as That's... I expected it would be. As I expected it would Brilliant. Listen, we'll okay. talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. All right. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know, it's really interesting to actually hear from somebody who is in the room. Yes, you and know, Laura was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like uh, Malgram's before being in the room with JFK, but actually this is, this is more prescient now. And one of the really interesting things she said there was this whole thing about minority rule. Like, it's something that we've spoken about before, about how these small groups actually have the loudest voice. Well, it's, it, it's very interesting. I mean, what, I, what I love about talking to Laura is the fact that I wish more economists could sound like that. Empathetic. They've, they have done the thing. I mean, yeah. she's done it, yeah. right? But she's got empathy, humanity. She understands that, you know, what we're talking about is trying to move a massive big ship with a huge amount of vested interests and a huge amount of stakeholders, yeah. right? And how do you do this without inflaming one side, without inflaming the other, making sure you get through the centre rather than going to the extremes yeah. and inflaming what is an already inflamed situation, you know? And that's what I think if economists could strive to that sort of level of, of wisdom more than anything else, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think the minority rule stuff is really fascinating. Well, I'll just give you a statistic on minority rule, John, about America and the way the system works there, right? Since 1992, seven out of the last eight presidential elections, the Democrats have won the popular vote. Think about that. Oh, right. Okay. Seven, including this one. Seven out of the last eight, they've won the popular vote. From 1992 until this year, the Democrats have held the presidency 16 years and the Republicans have held the presidency for 12 years. And yet, wow. almost every case, the Democrats have won the popular vote. So that means, that isn't that what amazing? What does that say about their... What it says about this, about the democracy. electoral college. Yes. It's about this. Yeah. You remember Laura was talking about the fact that Dakota has two senators? Yeah. 
which has got a tiny population, a fraction of the population of LA, and California as a whole delivers two senators. So therefore... Right. Yeah, because every state delivers two, right? So therefore, if the senators from Dakota or a small state are captured by a vocal minority, that amplifies profoundly the impact of that vocal minority on the national stage. And it's something that's really fascinated me for a long, long time when I'm listening to people blithely talk about democracy. And they say, well, you know, the will of the majority. Mm, mm. And the assumption is the majority wins and that the majoritarianism is a good thing. Then you actually look and say, is that the case? Does the majority win? And what you actually find in democracies, particularly the way democracies are structured, and particularly PR systems or the American electoral system, is that if you have a vocal minority that can guarantee to a politician maybe 100,000 votes, Mm. can guarantee, that suddenly changes that politician. That politician is in your back pocket because you can say, you need 200,000 votes, we can give you 100,000 if you do this, right? So if you notice it all over the world, I've always been intrigued, for example, if you look at minorities in every area. If you think about the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, right? Do you remember that? There was a big fight between... The Mensheviks were actually the bigger party. But the Bolsheviks won through. Why? Because sometimes a small, really committed, ideologically radical element will always have that extra impulse to do their thing. And you see it all over the place. Look at planning in Dublin, right? Planning in Ireland. But this is the power of of the lobbyists. It's absolutely the power of the lobbyists. Well, not just the lobbyists. It's the power of those coalitions that can be built, that can guarantee a certain X amount of votes Mm. for a politician. Take, for example, Ireland. I've always said the most powerful political organisation here in this part of the world is a well-organised residence committee, right? Yeah, yeah, Okay, with a Karen, with a big (laughs) clipboard, okay? Now, the reason it is, is because they can actually bully the politicians into saying, we don't want a school here, we don't want a road here, we don't want a corporation estate within an arse's roar of our backyard, Right. And they change things. So whereas the majority of people might say, well, you know, we need a housing to solve the housing problem. These people say, yeah, but not in my backyard. And if enough people say that, you don't solve the problem. Yeah. So the minority supersedes the majority. And this is not even a facet of democracy. It's a condition of our modern democracies. So you get to the crazy situations where the Democrats in the United States have won seven out of the last eight presidential elections by the popular vote, Mm. yet they've shared the presidency with the Republicans, who've only won one popular vote out of the last eight since 1992. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that is incredible. And it's interesting that, and it was the one thing that I was hoping wouldn't happen, but Moscow Mitch got back in. And he's the guy who held up Obama and all Obama's gender. And he's there again for Biden. And apparently Obama is a politician who is aloof, remote, but always remains friendly to most people, mm. except for Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Obama won't talk to him. They won't talk to him, which is still now. That's because when he was elected, when he first entered office, Mitch McConnell said publicly, we're going to make sure that there's a one-term president. Extraordinary stuff. Yeah. But the upside for America... If you're worried about America not being able to function, Joe Biden has all those attributes 
that are makes him much more likely to be able to do a deal with the other side of the house than Obama or certainly Bernie or AOC yeah. or even Kamala Harris. In fact, Harris in the Democratic primaries accused Biden of being far too close to Republicans. Right, yeah. That he wasn't left enough. And in actual fact now, it may well be that Uncle Joe is the guy to bring people together. So that could be one plus for the Americans. But what about, what do you think, now that Biden's in power, Yeah, that the likes of, you know, like uh, the Lincoln Project and those guys are now going to go back to being Republicans. So what's it say about the Democrat Party? Where yeah. there's, you know, they could easily kind of split and so could the Republican Party. I think you're onto something. Here's a thought. Here's a thought, right? Trump ain't going away. Mm. But the way in which the Republicans have abandoned him now, in what he would see as his time of need, yeah. means he's going to be pissed off, he's going to be angry, he's going to go back to where he's most comfortable, his base. Yeah. Like, he's not a member of the Republican Party. People forget that Trump is not a Republican. Yeah. He's a Trumpist, right? Yeah. The Republicans grafted themselves onto Trump rather than Trump grafting himself onto the Republicans. So he's a wild card. So imagine that Trump says, okay, I've been robbed not only by the electoral process, but these people who I got into power, mm. right? The Republicans in the House and the Congress, blah, 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 they reject me. So I'm going to go and I'm going to pick up the pieces of the Trump former Tea Party campaign. Yeah. These the pickup truck guys, right? Yeah. Trumpism, right? And I am going to do like a Ross Perot. I'm going to go on my own, right? So he breaks away and takes the Tea Party rump with him. But it's not a rump, it's a big, significant. Trump Huge, will be emboldened yeah. because he has got 70 million people who voted for him or thereabouts. Okay, yeah. some crazy figure, right? So he's going to be happy that the base is there. Yeah. Then and, the, and their nose is out of joint as well. Completely. It, they, They're they, all your friends in Fox. Yeah, They're all right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? So you, you imagine American politics, four years, next four years. Trump splits the Republican Party, goes out on his own. The Republicans then become the party of Lincoln and Eisenhower, which they were, and Bush, right? Yeah. Kind of waspy, yeah. right? They become the party of big business, the party of low taxes, but also the party of this sort of idea of one nation Americans, that they have this big sense, right? Yeah. So they're the centre-right. So the Trump is the radical right populist and the centre-right, the party of Lincoln. Okay, that's a split yeah. in the right. But also what you're going to see is because Biden, if he has to deal with McConnell all the time, will not be able to deliver on the Bernie AOC agenda of the more what they call progressives. Yeah. Uh, because you heard Laura there talking about it's absolutely imperative as far as she's concerned, and she's a centrist Democrat to expunge this idea of being socialist because socialism, the word socialism... Such a taboo. Fears, this is why they've come up with the expression progressive. Yeah. Progressive, yeah, 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 yeah. progressive is making up. It's true yeah. socialism, right? But it, but it doesn't sound as bad because yeah. who doesn't like being progressive? Yeah, yeah. The it's forward-looking. Yeah, yeah, you can be regressive, yeah. backward-looking, yeah. right? And of course, and you know that I've sat with Bernie up in Vermont and yeah. talked to them all yeah. about this and it's been really interesting. But there is a chance they split. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie... AOC, the left, yeah. and they begin to look more like a left-wing party, like a Labour party. Yeah. And then, of course, the centre ground, Democrats become the meritocracy party, the party yeah. of the reasonably... The Lib Dems yeah. of the America. It's the, but it's also the people who've done well. So it's a yeah. weird alliance of Wall Street, think about it, yeah. Silicon Valley and Hollywood. 
that's the strangest alliance, and that's what it is. Yeah. So you have there's a there's a so they're woke Republicans. They are they are woke Republicans exactly, <laughs> but there is a chance, John. There is a chance that what we have witnessed is the end of the two party system, and Trump will trigger that. But by shaking out the extreme right from the Republicans, he'll focus in on divisions within the Democratic Party. The Bernie wing are going to be fed up because they're not going to get what they want. And they might end up splitting. Because remember we always said about the left? They always look for traitors? They always look for traitors. You're not left enough. Yes. They go back to the good book. They go back to the Old Testament of Marx. (laughs) And they say, I believe that, look, you were were solid on five left-wing issues, but on the sixth, you're not left enough, (laughs) right? You're a traitor. Or or they'll do what every great Irish revolutionary organisation has ever done. They come together, because we always hate the Brits. They all come together. We can't say, oh, Jesus, I hate them too. And they all sit down and always on an Irish political movement, the first item on the agenda is always the split. Because one guy splits off, (laughs) one guy splits here. And at the end of the day, the entire movement atrophies when faced with the responsibility of governance. (laughs) 